Welcome to The Great Awakening. I'm your host, Josh Dawes. Today on the show, I welcome Trevin Wax. He is the Vice President of Research and Resource Development at North American Mission Board. He has just written, um, just released this past year, a new book called The Thrill of Orthodoxy, um, which is all about uh, rediscovering the wonder of the truths, the core truths of Christianity and the Bible. And I uh, finished the book recently. It's extremely helpful um, for confronting the issues of our time and helping Christians to just rediscover um, the beauty of what we truly believe, the, the beliefs that we hold in common as Christians. And um, it's a, a great conversation um, with Trevin. Uh, we get into a little bit of uh, cultural engagement um, discussion. Uh, Trevin has written a series of articles at the Gospel Coalition responding to Aaron Wren's Three Worlds um, of Evangelicalism framework and sees things a little differently. So we get into that a little bit, uh, talk a bit about uh, the winsomeness discourse. And, um, you know, I think it was a productive conversation, even though we kind of see some things slightly differently. I think at heart, we uh, we recognize the, the same uh, cultural situation and, um, you know, have slightly different perspectives on it. But I think it's good to have those conversations and not just um, stay in a, you know, uh, a bubble, an echo chamber, listening to people who all think and believe the same things you do. But it's important to talk and have dialogue with especially other Christians who agree on the essentials of faith. So I was very excited to sit down with Trevin and have this conversation. So let's jump right into that. Hey, Trevin, thanks for joining me on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I uh, recently finished your book that um, came out towards the end of last year, um, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Um, can you explain what that book is and why you felt like uh, that was the message the church needed to hear right now? Yeah, you know, I mean, it really, it, it kind of came out from several burdens all converging. Um, I, did a, I did a talk for the Gospel Coalition several years ago on that topic, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Part of it is... Uh, I love the Chestertonian way of just being in awe at the world and at the the story of redemption. And um, so there's a there's a sense in which um, just having been influenced by Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, the, the people that are were were um, you know British writers who were trying to recapture something of the the drama of the dogma of Christianity and how the, the doctrines of Christianity are really good news and, and actually more exciting than, than the, 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 the pale imitations that the heresies wind up being, even though they, they get marketed as really exciting. So, so part of me is just, that's been in the back of my mind the last 10 years or so I've been really influenced by that. But, uh, but honestly, like the last few years, I think, I think the burden for the book came about, um, uh, Number one, because I sense that there's a real loss of confidence in the goodness of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people that are still checking the boxes, affirming the right doctrines, the, the traditional Christian views on any number of things, um, but who have lost a sense of the beauty and goodness of what it is that they're checking off. And my opinion is that's, that's generally not sustainable. Like mm -hmm. you, you, you know, you, even if because of biblical authority, you want to, you want to believe what the Bible says, even no matter how hard it is to hear, um, at some point you want to delight in the law of the Lord, right? You, you mm -hmm. want your heart to, to move in that direction. So, so I sense a, a sense of a loss of confidence that what we really have is good news and almost a, a, a bit of an embarrassment at some of mm -hmm. the, the harder edges of Christianity. So that's a burden. That's a burden for me because I don't think that's sustainable long-term. I think we've got to, to address that, that side of, of, of drifting away from the truth. I think that can, that can happen. So there's that. Um, also just, there's a, any number of debates out in society right now over all sorts of very complicated things that pastors and church leaders generally are not experts in and don't necessarily need to be experts in. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of political debates, there's issues of prudence, wisdom, and all sorts of 
decisions that churches are going to need to make. I mean, obviously the pandemic exacerbated a lot of that. Um, that was already kind of there. There's polarizing tribes and whatnot. And all of that is real. And, um, uh, and I think weighs on, on church leaders that, that want to, uh, to be faithful in this time. Uh, but when, you know, when the, the culture winds are blowing and when it's difficult to know, and you don't have a thou shalt not, or a thou shalt in the Bible on any number of things, and it's hard to know exactly, are we making the right call here? Maybe we're making a mistake. Maybe this isn't the right way. Maybe we need to backtrack. Maybe we need, you know, all that. I, I I felt like, okay, well, in a moment of uncertainty like that, then what you, what, one of the things the church needs to recover and do is to like dig down to the bedrock of the faith and put the flag down there to where it'd be like, okay, we may be getting stuff wrong here and there and how we're reacting or responding on this thing or that thing. But like this, I know, I know without a shadow of doubt. I mean, the church has stood here a hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries, the church will still be standing here. So like getting back to the basics, to the foundation, to the fundamental uh, aspect of the faith is, is a, is a key component of that. Um, and then, and then the third, the third burden is, um, I think every generation just needs to recover a passion for sound doctrine. I mean, we, the Bible mm-hmm. talks about doctrine as healthy, life-giving. Um, I think doctrine really matters. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes the people that talk the most about doctrines, uh, and get, you know, labeled discernment or whatever, they're, they're not, in my mind, they're not actually discerning enough because they don't always discern the, the, the hierarchy of doctrines, the way that, that doctrines hang together, the, the difference, you know, the differences that, that different Christians may have on different areas that are not necessarily, that could be errors, but not necessarily heresies mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. And I, and because there are some so quick to pounce on any sort of doctrinal drift or deviation as sort of the, the sign of a heresy or whatnot, it can actually lead people who ought to know better to kind of shift away from talking about doctrinal distinctives altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, yep. th- I think in order to like, get, well, they're like, I don't want to be part of that discernment crowd. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, that's a disaster. That's a disaster waiting to happen because what you're communicating is a doctrine doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, how we love people like Jesus loves people and how we, you know, and then, and over in, in a generation, you've, you've lost the, some of the essentials of Christianity if, if you do that. So, so there is an aspect of the book too, that's wanting to, to sort of reclaim the fundamental truths of the faith and the, and, and these doctrines and say they are biblical and they are good and they're really important yeah. and that we can't move from here. So that's a long answer to your question, but I think a lot of those things were swirling around in my, my head and in my heart as I was putting the, the book together. Yeah. I love that you, you, you said that about, um, we've almost become embarrassed about, you know, certain doctrines. And I, you know, I wrote a thread on Twitter about a year ago where I talked about, um, kind of my journey through, um, kind of the seeker sensitive ministry, you know, ministry model and how I grew up in, you know, I was a pastor's kid. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and in college, I, you know, I was, I wanted to show that, you know, well, we're not like that weird, you know, fundamentalist stuff that I grew up in. I, I'm a cool Christian. And, you know, I remember actually having a conversation with someone and saying, I wish that wasn't in the Bible. I, I frankly, you know, if I had my druthers, I, I would take that out of the Bible. And, you know, over the years coming to a point of like, I'm, I was talking about God, the word of God, and I was embarrassed of it. And, and I think um, I love that your, your book is addressing that, that it's not just true, but it's also good. Um, you know, like for, for someone who maybe has kind of grown up in kind of your vanilla um, evangelical church that preaches, you know, you know, five ways to manage your finances, what, what do you mean by just the word orthodoxy? How is that different than doctrine or, um, yeah, what, what, what do you mean by that? Sure, sure. That's a, that's a great question. And um, I just, just to comment real quick on your, your comment about at one point feeling, you know, in a seeker-sensitive environment, kind of embarrassed by some aspects of Christianity. I, what's, what's ironic to me about that is I don't actually think that's attractive to seekers. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I, I love, mm-hmm. I love the evangelistic impulse that, that, you know, mm-hmm. that in that, in that being evangelistically front facing, as we might say, 
there's there's a lot of wisdom in that, the desire to persuade and whatnot. But I I will just I will say what's one of the things I think we've got to kind of wake up to is that if we are perpetually unsettled with aspects of our faith, with aspects of Christian teaching, to where we're just sort of always wrestling with it and never really liking it, but just sort of kind of gritted teeth trying to adhere to it. I just, I just don't think that that's actually attractive to seekers. You know, like what we're basically mm-hmm. saying, come and join this Christian faith that so you can be as unsettled as we are. <laughs> you know, like that doesn't even, <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense. But I, for some reason, and I think it may be because of the honesty of some of the difficulty, and there are some, you know, difficult teachings to Jesus. I mean, disciples walked away from Jesus for some of those. But, uh, but back, back to, but you asked about orthodoxy. Um, uh, I'm, I'm speaking in this book, and I, this was the, the hard part working with the editor at this book, it's like, okay, what do we mean by orthodoxy? Because obviously there's little low orthodoxies that are associated with different, as, with different traditions within Christianity, right? So there's like reformed orthodoxy, or, you know, you know, I have like more Methodist orthodoxy. There's like, obviously, if you're sprinkling babies, uh, uh, you're not adhering to Baptist orthodoxy and whatnot. I, I was, I've decided to, for this book to, to kind of, to focus, to really zero in on the, the, uh, the, the ecumenical creeds that go back to like, what are the foundational, the, what's the Trinitarian core of Christianity, you know, C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity or what, what Thomas Otis, Odin called classic Christianity, consensual Christianity, meaning the, the classic consensus. Um, and so I went back to the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed and the, and the, um, uh, Chalcedonian statement, the Athanasian Creed, because those are the ones that all wings of the church agree on. Now, I mean, I, at, the, I, at the same time, I've got some Catholic friends who, are, you know, have, have read Thrill of Orthodoxy, and they, obvi- they, I'm, you know, I'm sure are rolling their eyes at some level at some of at the evangelical emphases coming out in the book. But that I don't really apologize for those. I, I think that there are certain uh, evangelical essentials that are vital to the health of the church worldwide. Um, and that I want to actually see, you know, growing and, 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 and bearing fruit in, in all wings of the church. So when I'm talking about orthodoxy, though, I'm talking about these fundamental core Trinitarian truths that are at at the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian without which there is no salvation. Like departing from this is departing from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, and that's, so that, that, having that definition of orthodoxy then allows me to 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 very quickly be able to define heresy as the departure and then wow. also to be able to speak about errors that couldn't creep up that are kind of in between heresy and orthodoxy that uh some bigger than others but but ones obviously that that we'd you know would seek to avoid but uh but help to make some of those distinctions uh so that we understand the differences between different doctrines yeah. Um, reminds me of, um, Dr. Moeller's, um, uh, what did he call it? Oh, theological uh, triage. Theological triage. Yeah. yeah. Just that, that ranking of error. You know, um, Ryan, Ryan also, Putman has a great book on this too, on, uh, I can't remember it, the name of it. I wrote a review of it. Uh, he and Gavin Ortland both did like, uh, I think they did like Hills to Die on at Gavin Ortland, but I think Ryan, Ryan Putman was even a, a, a bigger volume on, uh, how evangelicals are thinking through, you know, the, I think it's called when doctrine divides or something to that effect, but what are those mm-hmm. divisions? How do we, you know, rank those divisions and whatnot? Kind of going back to, to Moeller's um, uh, example there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went back and read that, read that again within the, the last year, um, Dr. Moeller's uh, article. And one thing that struck me that that I think gets lost in a lot of the conversation is there's not just a seriousness of the error, but there's also a um, urgency to the error. Like it may be a, a, a smaller error um, than, than something else, but because of the culture we're living in, the times and the you know, crises we're facing, this error may be a little bit more urgent to address, um, even though it's not as toxic to the church as um, maybe something else. Um, I think Joe Rigney has, has talked a lot about that too. in, in some conversations I've had with him, but, um, how do we, how do we kind of determine where those lines are? Where, what do we go to the mattresses for, um, you know, within our churches when we see 
things coming in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a different, um, I, I think that that's a, that's a great question and it, and it requires a lot of wisdom. Um, the, one of the, one of the things that I'm constantly saying, uh, both in my, my podcast on reconstructing faith and in, hopefully it comes out in the book as well, is that, um, we, this is why we need church history and the global church. Because without those two anchors, we lose perspective pretty quickly. We lose, we're, we're, we're not able to, to really, to, to recognize which errors are in danger of multiplying. You know, sometimes there are doctrinal deviations that are like cracks in the foundation and they're not necessarily where the wall's collapsing, but you can see where they, where, where if they continue to multiply or continue to move in a particular direction, they will lead to, to structural damage in a, in a, in a, in, in a building and a construction site of some sort. So, so there is that. And um, one of the ways I think that we, we can, 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 can help figure out like, where do we need to put urgency around things or where can we, where can we just have really good conversation about matters of prudence and wisdom and, and not necessarily come to full agreement, but even have at times heated discussions about things. Um, I, I really think the perspective that's needed is the, is the church throughout history and the, and the, the global church, because it gets us but doing that, it extends you through time. So you're not in the chronological snobbery that C.S. Lewis warned about. You, you can actually mm-hmm. visit a different time and see things differently and maybe wonder, okay, I wonder why it was seen that way back then and what they might've gotten right about that and where we might think they were wrong about that. Or, and, and why would they think we're wrong about something that we now take for granted that they didn't see at all? You know, like where, where is the the kernel of whatever it was that they were seeking to, how they were seeking to be faithful and not with a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always concerned about people looking back to the past simply to judge our forebears by our new standards. Like that's not what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. I'm talking about looking back to the past, recognizing warts and all what are there, but recognizing that they can expose some of the warts we may not be able to see ourselves. So, so there's that aspect of the, the church throughout history. And then the church around the world helps us stay out of the, the vortex of American political polarization. It helps us recognize that, I mean, Christians are just in different places around the world, are all over the place on any number of prudential questions related to, I mean, you know, there's conversations now about, you know, governments and, and you know, the nationalism conversations and how influential should Christianity be in the public square and whatnot. I mean, you're going to get really different answers to that when you talk to, you know, faithful believers in Australia who are hunkering down under secularism versus, you know, I mean, I just think of like some, some places in Nigeria and whatnot, or in a couple of places in Africa where like, it's basically a Christian nation in, in, you know, in, so all that to say is that the, the variety of the worldwide church helps you put a lot of those things in perspective to where you'll just, you'll just be a lot slower to write off or anathematize, you know, brothers and sisters in the congregation that may, for whatever reason, come to, you know, have some, some, some honest disagreements about, about the way forward, about how to, you know, interact and whatnot. And you're also able a little bit to separate politics at some level. You can't do this completely, but, but uh, politics from theology to where, you know, because someone may have a particular stance you know, uh, like, like, uh, like tons of my Romanian brothers and sisters are, you know, it like shocked me when I discovered they were, you know, they, they couldn't fathom how I would be for capital punishment. This is back in the, you know, when I first was a student there, because I mean, they had a dictator mm-hmm. for 40 something years. And, you know, right after the dictator and his wife were, were shot dead on Christmas day after the revolution, like the first the first law that was passed was like outlawing capital punishment because it had been so abused for so many years, you know? And, but I remember thinking, Oh, I I guess that's not like an essential of the faith, you know, like they see this differently than I, you know, did back then or whatnot. So you just, you, you wind up having your, you wind up being able to have perspective on, on debatable things because of your interaction with, with people in other parts of the world. who just, they just, often see things differently than we do and can, can bring, can bring a little bit of perspective to some of the debates that, that Royal us over here. Yeah. One of the things you talked about in the book that I thought was really helpful was, um, kind of the, 
I don't know, the um, conflict between certainty and humility. Can you uh, kind of unpack what you were getting at there? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a trend in in evangelical circles, I think, today, and not just even, I think it's a trend culture-wide, but in, in, in evangelical circles, I see it as well, to, to relegate the faith to the realm of personal values. Um, it, that's a, that's a society wide trend that it's really difficult for us to resist completely because it's so pervasive in our culture that like, it's a private spiritual thing. It's like your thing. Right. And because of that, we tend to think of certainty as if like, if you're really certain about something, well, then you're arrogant. If you're certain about something doctrinally, because that's a, that's a private personal matter. Who's to you? I mean, it's your truth versus my truth. Kind of that's where people put religion and spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I, there is a, there is an enlightenment influence sort of comprehensive certainty, like, you know, that we can kind of plumb the mysteries of God and understand the depths and have all of our I's dotted and T's crossed and, and really have almost a God's eye view of things. There is a, there is an enlightenment modernist arrogance to thinking about some aspects of religion. And I don't want to, I don't want to deny that. Um, but I don't think the answer to that sort of modernist arrogance is a postmodern arrogance that masquerades as humility. And what I mean by that is when you've got people saying, well, you think what you think and I think what I think, but we can never really know for sure. And so we really just can't come to, there really can't be a right answer on this because we, we both disagree. That, that's actually dogmatism masquerading as humility. Uh, it's, the, it's the Council of Sirmium, uh, you know, is, is, is the example I use that Michael Ovi points out, where it, in the Arian debates, they were basically saying, you know what? Arius's people have their texts and Athanasius's people, you know, like it wasn't Athanasius, it was, it, it, the, the, the Orthodox people have their texts and the Arians have their texts. We're just going to say nobody can know for sure. And nobody should be certain about this. Well, that didn't go over very well because the, the, the Orthodox bishops were like, well, what do you, what do you mean to say we can't know something that's this profound? Like there can't be an answer. Um, and so, you know, that, but, but it is, there's something about that, you know, GK Chesterton said it's a dislocated humility (laughs) that, you know, we've, we've, we've moved humility, um, away from, uh, um, that, you know, of, of, of certainties when it comes to to certain aspects and we've moved it to where we don't even know what our aims are anymore. We don't even know what our ambitions are because we, we've, we, we, we're, we're too humble to even know what the good is that we want to pursue because we're just so uncertain about, about everything. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, it frustrates me. Occasionally I see even like writers I really love, (laughs) like sometimes kind of just acting as if, well, if you're certain about a doctrine, that's a sign that you're, you're not holding that humbly. And I'm like, Oh, I don't, I don't think that that's the way the Bible talks about certainty or humility. I just, I don't, I I think we, we've got to, we've got to get out of our cultural milieu a little bit to see why that's, why that's not, not the right path. Right. One of the things I love about studying church history is seeing how um, different doctrines are um, really brought into focus uh, in response to certain heresies that the church is facing. And, um, you know, I just recently um, led a, a class at our church on great saints in church history, and we talked about uh, Augustine and you know, the different controversies he had to, you know, speak to, and just the, the better understanding we got of doctrine through that. Where do you see um, the church kind of lacking today in the, the kind of heresies or, you know, things that we're confronting that, that we need to really dig in and, and kind of better understand our doctrine? Oh, it's definitely anthropology, I think. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be male and female? like the, the, uh, I, I don't want to say the church has been caught flat footed here, but it, we, there's, there's, there's eras of Christian, of, of church history where different areas of doctrine wind up getting attacked or exposed. And then the church actually comes to a clearer understanding of what's already there in orthodoxy through the heresy. So I don't want to 
make it sound like, well, heresies are a gift to the church because they help us clarify. I mean, heresies ravage the church. False teaching ravages mm-hmm. the church. It, it, it's, it's destructive. It's damaging. It leaves uh, um, destruction in its wake. So I, I don't, don't hear me speaking about heresy in ways that uh, would, would diminish the impact. But there is a sense, and even Augustine mentions it, and, and throughout history, there's a sense, there's other theologians who have said, if there is one good purpose of heresy, it's that it often forces the church back to its foundational, again, Trinitarian core, essentials of Christianity, where in doing deeper digging and deeper study, we come to an even more beautiful aspect of the diamond that we've received. Like we uncover aspects of orthodoxy that were already there, but get clarified and sharpened so that we mm-hmm. understand them even more. For us, it's anthropology. Uh, no question. The, the, the debates over sexual morality, uh, over same-sex marriage, over the meaning of marriage, the meaning of our embodiedness, what it means. Like, what do our bodies mean, si- signify? Uh, what does it mean for us to be body and soul? What, what, do, what, do, does, uh, our, our, what do our sex differences actually communicate? And what is the, the meaning of those? This is the area that is under assault in in the culture. Um, you can trace it back. I mean, you know, Truman goes back through Romanticism, but I mean, you can throw Darwin in there, Nietzsche. I mean, you've got you can get, you can find all the philosophical currents as to why we're here where we're here. But the anthropological, the great anthropological heresies are the ones that we're going to have to figure out how to name and deal with, and then sharpen our. Our, our understanding on this. So, you know, I get, I get pushback from people because I, you know, you see this in the book. I believe that, you know, capitulation on marriage and sexuality is a, is a moving away from moral orthodoxy. And the idea that you would include morality and orthodoxy when it's not sort of spelled out in the creeds or whatever, to me is like, that's a non-starter of an argument because that's not, the, the creeds have never been used as as, as the catch-all for every particular issue the church might face, um, you've, you've got implied in the creeds all sorts of things. And what I would say is that, you know, um, it's, not that, it's not that same-sex marriage itself is the heresy. The anthropological heresy is, is underneath the surface. Same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships or whatnot, is, it, that's the presenting issue. That's the issue that is at the top mm. of the iceberg that we're dealing with. But underneath that is the anthropological issue that's also connected to the authority of scripture and whatnot. I mean, there's multiple ways that you can say that this is the presenting issue. It, this is a symptom. What's the disease? But I think we've got a lot of work to do. Honestly, I think, I think in many cases, Roman Catholics have been ahead of the curve on this, uh, on, on, the, on teasing out the implications of some of the, the of Christian anthropology faster than we as Protestants have that, but we're, you know, quickly and good catching up, I think on some of that, but that, that's the, that's going to be the heresy of our, that's the heresy of our generation. I mean, most likely, yeah, I don't, you know, how, know how long the Lord will give me life, but I don't foresee in the next 50 years, there being a bigger heresy than that one. The, other than the fact that if you, if you, 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 uh, once compromise and capitulation to that anthropological heresy, you know, the, the rest of the structure crumbles. I mean, you lose Jesus at the end of the day because it's right. our anthropology can't right. be understood apart from Christology. Right. So, so the, the rest of the, mm-hmm. the, the, the framework falls, which is what you see happening in, you know, some denominations and whatnot. It's, it's all there uh, together once the, the particular heresy takes root. Yeah. I think caught flat footed is a great way to, to, to say it because I mean, so much of what we're, we're seeing just wasn't even, it was just taken for granted that a man was a man that just the fact that we're dealing with people that think they can change genders, that's, that's uncharted territory. And so, yeah, I totally agree on that. Um, how do we, Okay. Well, so can, can I, can I add one thing, can I add one thing you just said about, yeah, the, go about ahead. Sure. I may not have been, I, I, I may not have been strident enough when I said we were caught flat footed. I think there's a, a, a real sense in which evangelicals have been complicit in falling for some mm. of the sexual revolution 
ideology and dogma without realizing it. And I mean, even before Mm -hmm. we get to the question of same-sex relationships, the expressive individualism, the UBU, be true to yourself, kind of all of that, the no-fault divorce laws. I mean, you can point back to... I. We lost some of the battles on marriage because they were lost before we realized that there were battles there. We imbibed a lot of the of yep. the same mentality of as the world in a number of these areas where the 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 under the the signs of those anthropological heresies were already showing up before we got to the question of same-sex marriage and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I, I I wouldn't want to say we were caught flat-footed and sort of we the culturally pristine ones are now trying to like maintain our right. faithfulness. I think, I think we've had to look back and actually have an accounting to some, at some level to say, we, we've not, we, we had, we didn't realize the stakes early enough in some of the areas mm-hmm. that got us to this point. And, you know, I mean, again, not, not condemning evangelicals in previous generations, but just, just, just saying we, we, we have been part of the problem world in, in, uh, not, mm-hmm. not only our salt has, has, has not always been as tasty as it should be when it comes to marriage and the family. So yeah. just want just wanted to add that. Cause I yeah. think that's important context for us moving forward. You know, if we're going to, if we're going to be faithful in the future. Yeah, totally agree that, um, yeah, that brings me, I, I wanted to talk to you about cultural engagement and how we you know, because I, I think you and I just talking to you, I think we are on the same page on all of this stuff and where we're at as a culture and the the problems we're facing. And yet um, I think we see things a little bit different. And I wanted to see if we could kind of talk through that and kind of, I don't know, model how to <laughs> maybe disagree and have a conversation about these, um, how we do cultural engagement. Um, I'm a big fan of Aaron Wren's uh, Three Worlds of Evangelicalism model. We've had him as guest on the show. And, um, you know, I think it, it makes a lot of sense that we've transitioned from a, a you know, positive world uh, early, you know, post-war to a neutral world in the 90s and somewhere around 2014 you know, the world has grown actively hostile to Christians and Christianity and Christian belief. Um, um, you've, you've pushed back a little bit on that. Uh, can you explain uh, kind of your point of view? You, you wrote a, I think, was a nine-part series yeah. for the Gospel Coalition, kind of responding to that and a lot of the critiques of winsomeness. Um, what, what, where, where, are you, where are we... Would yeah, you disagree you know, with Aaron? Um, I've heard Aaron talk about this quite a bit. Of course, I've read the 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 essay that he did a couple of times um, on this. I well, I it's not that I necessarily think Aaron's completely off base in that analysis. I don't. I actually I I think there's something to be said for that. And what what's fascinating to me is that a guy in Australia, Stephen McAlpine and Tim Keller, both point before Aaron's article pointed to 2014 as something of a cultural shift that they're that they felt when it came to Mm -hmm. to to this so Mm -hmm. so there's something to be said for that i don't think that that uh framework of thinking through things would have uh caught on of the imagination of so many evangelicals if there weren't something to it so if i'm doing anything i just i'm Mm -hmm. i want to complicate it a little bit uh because i don't think it's as simple as that and and the reason why i i would complicate it is because i think we've got to be really i i think I think the the posture that we have, the way that we see ourselves really does affect some of the the way we we think about fulfilling the Great Commission and the ways we try to go about doing that. And so like our self-image of ourself within our culture has effects on how we how we engage. So when it when it comes to um to Aaron's taxonomy there and the, you know, the I'm not not so sure about the 1994 dates and the, you know, in in going back, I'm not sure that he like really like says that's a hill to die on either. Um, but there is a sense in which when it comes to the question of Christian morality in general, when it comes to sexuality, yeah, I mean, we're, 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 was everybody in our society like abiding by those morals? No, but the norms were there and they were seen as respectable. Mm -hmm. 
And they were actually seen as, in many cases, good, even if people didn't always live up to them. I mean, you can look back to some of the history. I mean, the 40s and 50s even were, I mean, there was a lot of promiscuity. I mean, it's not, it's, we have sort of this image of, you know, what, what classic TV shows, and I'm a big classic TV fan, but I mean, you, 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 you know, you've got, yes, you can watch the Donna Reed show, but you also have got to like read on the road next to that as well to recognize that this is all happening same time. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so like it, it, there's not like one snapshot of where the culture was at the time where Aaron's taxonomy makes sense is when you're, when we're talking about um, the, the, the moral norms of our society being influenced by centuries of Christian thought. Um, I mean, I think he's pretty much right there on sexuality. Like we, we, whether the dates are exactly right, we moved from where that was seen as a positive Mm -hmm. that we were all trying to kind of, even people that didn't live up to it were seen as that's something to strive for to where it was more neutral. Yeah. I guess everybody live and let live. You can kind of do, you know, everyone kind of do their own thing. If Christians want to live this way, it's great. If people want to live this way, it's fine to where then when it came to the issues of when sexuality became merged with identity in a very pronounced way, then is when expressive individualism, um, and merged, you know, overlaid on sexuality. That's when you you see now the 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 idea that well, it's not Christian morality being backwards; it's actually being harmful, repressive. And so, Christian, you know, those views don't even deserve a place in the public square. Like my article today on the Gospel Coalition is about Ivan Provorov and and why there's this pressure. So many feel this pressure to punish dissenting voices on on LGBT matters when. I mean, the culture has shifted dramatically in 10 years on this issue. Um, so so when all that to say, I've, I've basically said, I think there's something to Aaron's taxonomy there. I think it's more complicated, though, um, in, an, in a couple of different ways that I that I that I point out. One is it, all, it also you got to change the frame to see what the issue is, because there's going to be negative world kind of consequences, depending on where you are. depending on the issue. So if we're talking about morality and sexuality, yeah, I think Ren's got a strong point there. If we're talking about um, a a white pastor in Birmingham in the 1960s uh, who wants to allow a a black family into membership um, and then is either losing his job or is being chased out of town, threatened by the the clan or the, the, the neighborhood councils or whatnot. I mean, like that's not, that's not a positive world for that, for that pastor to be faithful in that situation. And mm-hmm. what's complicated is that like, so you just change, like, that's just one different issue where I'd say today that is not the, 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 the challenges around race are now the essentialist views of race, which that's a, that's a different challenge that are connected to different kinds of ideologies that need to be resisted in a different way. But my, but my point there is you change the frame and the, the negative world, positive world thing doesn't, doesn't work as much. It's one of the reasons why, you know, in different parts of the country, there are going to be some people that are like, I mean, I mean, the reality is Tim Keller planted Redeemer in negative world, New York. It was already, I mean, the, the views of mm-hmm. sexuality there were what had not pervaded the rest of society yet. And yet still he did it in an evangelistically front facing way. So, it, which I know James Wood kind of critiques the evangelistically front-facing way of doing things, but I, I kind of look like, well, we've, we've got to be thinking evangelistically and persuasively as Great Commission advocates, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. I mean, yes, we want to win certain political battles, but we also want to persuade our neighbors to, to follow Christ and to, you know, like I want, I want, I don't, I don't want us to like, I think there's a, there's a danger in, 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 um, losing that, that sort of great commission impact in some of the conversations. And if you, and if you think negative world, if if you go, if you go into the negative world posture and think solely within that one frame, well, then your response is something like Dreyer's Benedict option, most likely, which has merit to it. We need to make sure that we have like robust communities of faith that can withstand that the onslaught of secularism and sexual revolution ideology and whatnot, but it can lead to sort of a hunker down mentality, you know, just maintain what we've got where the mission 
the mission shows us on offense, not defense in that way. So, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't, again, I'm not, yeah. I'm not totally opposed to Aaron Wren's taxonomy there. I, if, if anything, I just want to complicate it a bit to be, because I, th- I think, I think we got to be careful that we don't let one framing of things drive all of our engagement. I think, I think that's going to lead us in, into unhealthy places in the future. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm tracking with a lot of that. Um, I definitely agree that if we have this, I I don't want that framework to give us, you know, put us into a defensive posture that, you know, world's out to get us. We got to, you know, get us into that hunker down or lash out um, mentality. I think where I would, and and I, I, I hear what you're saying about shifting the context to race and things have gotten better. Um, I would probably argue that they've just gotten different. <laughs> the, I think the, this, the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream vision that caught on was so rooted in, uh, could only come uh, bear fruit in a culture that was more positive towards those Christian values. And that's why that, that caught on. And I think even within that race, um, within that issue, what we're seeing today is so, it's, uh, it's almost flipped completely from that Christian rootedness um, that, you know, more of a colorblind, you know, seeing everyone is equal to the, you know, Marxist oppressor, oppression, uh, oppressed dichotomy. So I, I'm not sure. I, I, I think. I could argue that whatever context you look at, it, it's measurably less Christian than I, it I, was. You're, 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 um, I think you're pointing out what some other people have pointed out. I mean, I, I think there's a clear, the, 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 the presence and the, the pervasiveness of the black church and the civil rights movement versus the, the sort of ethos and, and understanding of like the, 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 the Black Lives Matter organization and whatnot is radically different, radically different. So I, I don't deny what you're, you're, Mm -hmm. you're saying there. I will say when it comes to some of the, when it comes to some of the expectations though, related to, um, um, like like, the the example I mentioned the, where, I mean, we're, we're in a, we're in a place though today where the, you know, I, the, the, the pressure would be for uh, like if there was a pastor, uh, you know, if there's a predominantly white church that's, you know, integrating uh, black families into its congregation, the pressure would be to, well, why wouldn't they do that? Whereas in many places in the country 60 years ago, mm-hmm. it was a, how could they do that kind of a thing? So the, the norms have changed in that way, in a way that are, that are more in line with, with, with biblical um, Christianity. I, you know, I, 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 the, the, when I say switch the frame though, I do, I, I, I see what you're saying there. You're saying because we have lost some of the black church influence in questions related to race and justice and whatnot, that even that's a sign of negative world in that the, the Christian sentiments there, um, are, are, and, and I think that's Mm -hmm. a really, really good point. What I was saying is though, there's a sense in which depending on the issue, there's, Christians are always going to have some kind of negative world connotations for faithfulness. It's what, you know, I recently was talking with Ajith Fernando about this um, in Sri Lanka saying like, this is, this is part of the Christian way is that there, you know, all faithful Christians are going to suffer for their faith, at least at some, at some level. So the, the negative world, it's not that the negative world framework is, is wrong. It's, it's just, I'm, I'm trying to, to complicate it a bit. So that the the frame the lens is a little wider, so that we don't wind up losing that great commission impulse of of persuading people uh, to follow Jesus, rather than um, mm. seeing people reducing people to combatants in a culture war. And I mean, there is a sense in which there is a culture war, mm-hmm. and th- many of the culture warriors are on the left, not the right. I mean, it's like the it's the culture warriors going after Ivan Provorov, not vice versa, right? So. The, if if there is that, and I think there is, right? Um, my my, you know, I I think we've got to respond to that. I think we've got to like engage politically. We've got to engage 
you know, artistically, we've got to engage in, with our families and we've got to, I think education is a huge space there, which I don't, we won't have time to get into this, but I, I think we're going to have to figure out pretty quickly what it looks like for there to be a mass movement of church-based Christian schools that are not, you know, not, not the ones that have the huge football teams and the, you know, everything that a, that a public school would have, but we, we're going to have to figure out fast what that, that sort of, what it's going to mean for us to really fortify the faith of our kids in the, in the next decade or so. Uh, but yeah. that's another, that's another thing. But so again, I don't disagree with everything about Aaron's taxonomy. I think it's um, where it, it could lead us astray somewhat is if we abandon the, the, the great commission impulse and evangelistic desire there that, that we, that we've got to have regardless of whatever circumstance we're put, we're placed in. Yeah. And, and I think that's what, you know, I think that's what um, James Wood's critiques of winsomeness and the third way stuff is trying to get at. I, I, it, you know, the characterization of it is that, oh, you just want to throw out the fruit of the spirit and, you know, be mean to people. Well, some people are but doing I think, that. I, I don't, James, least, James is not doing that. But, but, there, but there are plenty of people James online. <laughs> and so... I think it's a misrepresentation of James to think that that's what he's saying. Cause I do not think that's what he's saying. If you're reading him carefully, mm -hmm. James is, is actually in my mind, he's trying to apply some of Tim Keller's insights to a new world that we're, we're finding ourselves in. So he, he's not, I, I think it's mm -hmm. wrong to see sort of James as sort of the anti Tim Keller as the way that it, it's happened and been portrayed online. But there are Correct. plenty yeah. of people online who are, 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 are doing the very thing that James is saying we shouldn't do, but are doing so in the name of sort of, you know, going against, you know, winsomeness and, and that kind of thing. And that's, I mean, that's happening all over. I like, I've got plenty of, I, I mean, and call them trolls or whatever, but the, some of the emails I get, I'm just like yeah, this, yeah, this isn't the way, like you don't get, we don't get a pass on the fruit of the spirit um, you know, because we're, you know, we're engaged in a righteous cause. In fact, you know, and, and, if, and if anger is the primary motivator of our cultural engagement, I mean, James says, you know, anger doesn't work the righteousness of, of, of man. And, you know, I, I've got a quote from Gregory the Great that says, it's the diseased mind that thinks its anger is justified, is always justified, that always tends to think. So there's a, mm -hmm. there's That's a true. sense in which, um, we, I, I think, I do think there are real dangers there that we've got to watch out for, um, that, you know, in, in, in our desire to engage faithfully and take strong stands on particular things, I call it truthful witness instead of faithful presence. Um, that, but there, there, there always is that, that, that danger of, of believing our means to be just because our end is, is right. Uh, it's a, it's a perennial temptation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't agree there. I don't disagree there. I think um, I think this gets back to what you said early on in this uh, interview um, about how you uh, kind of the discernment bloggers or heresy hunters. I think that it gives people such a bad taste that a lot of leaders want to react against that. And that would be my frustration in trying to uh, express a lot of these um, critiques of the third way. It's not because, oh, we're losing the culture war. We got to ditch that. It's because I've, as I've matured and spent a lot of time in ministry context that would, you know, try that method of cultural engagement. I've just come to see like, wow, that, that creates a tendency in a lot of people um, to kind of look down on their fellow Christians because they see them as kind of an obstacle to their evangelism. So like, especially like when 2016 came and Donald Trump's the nominee and we're all like, Oh boy, what do we do with this? The, it was such a temptation. And I, I did this. I was hard, never Trump. Like these never, these Trump supporting Christians are ruining my witness. They need to go away let me throw them under the bus. And I, I it, it hurts my heart to see 
Um, There's almost a hubris to it that I, I know what will convince these, what will persuade people. And you're not it. And you're uh, you're causing my evangelistic efforts to fail. And I think we've got to rely on the Holy Spirit there and speak with clarity and not try and tailor our message in a way that we think will, um, you know, cause people to respond in a favorable way. Um, one thing, you know, you hear a lot is I'm too, um, you know, too conservative for the left and too, you know, liberal for the right. Um, you know, there's an idea that I think a lot of kind of urban, um, Christians in that context, there's this idea that, you know, most non-believers are on the left. And if we're going to appeal to them, we have to move in that direction to kind of soften those edges politically in order to be successful with our evangelism. And there is something really interesting happening on the right as people become red-pilled or whatever and start to question a lot of their long-held assumptions, they're looking at other things that they grew up believing that all roads lead to heaven or that Christianity is bigoted. And so there's, there's something exciting happening on the right. And I just want us to get back to, let's just with clarity, say what the Bible teaches and let the Holy Spirit work and and not lean so heavily on persuasion and thinking we know what will yeah I, I would Does that make sense i would just say that the end of what you just said there actually so if i can flip the frame once more here when 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 we're talking about persuasiveness and evangelistically front-facing is it true that among some urban evangelicals or people that are like trying to reach secular center left or far left people for christ that they felt embarrassed or dismissive of evangelical Trump voters and things like that. Yes. Uh, Because that's who they felt like their mission field was. And they felt like these other people are complicating, but there's a whole lot of non-religious or barely religious or cultural Christian only Trump voters that are also your mission field. And so what I want to say, so what I, what I would say is it's actually because I'm evangelistically front facing that I recognize that I've got to be like, I live in, I live in a very red area of the the country. Like I, I'm, 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 I'm going to, if I'm going to be sharing the gospel in where I live, generally I'm going to be sharing the gospel a lot of times with a Trump voter. Like it does me no favors to suddenly to be. So if I'm thinking great commission wise, evangelistically, whatnot, it really doesn't make sense for me to be like vehemently and vociferously anti-Trump to that individual that I'm seeking to, to understand and seeking to, it, it goes back to, you know, some of this is, is a uh, uh, class and cultural distinctions. And I think we've got to, we got a record a, a few years ago. Um, I, I kind of, I did a, I did a blog article about how, you know, what people had this, this vision of sort of the, the, the hip urban church planter hanging out at, you know, the Starbucks or the, the trend, not even the Starbucks, like the really trendy upscale coffee shop. And like, that's where all the evangelistic conversations are happening mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah. Like in the area I was in, it was McDonald's. Like I was in a rural area, like McDonald's was the hangout. That's where the kids played on the playground. That's where the old men went. And, you know, it was either that or hardy sometimes, but would, would, would circle up in the morning where you'd have, like, if I'm thinking like a missionary in the place that in some of the places I've served, uh, forget the upscale trendy, you know, coffee shop that makes me look cool. I need to be hip. I'm, you know, yeah. I've got my jeans and a t-shirt on and I'm going to McDonald's because that's where it, I mean, it, it's as uncool as possible, but that's the mission field. So, so I want to say like, there's, I think we, 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 we've got to recognize we are going to have in different people are going to be in different contexts, trying to reach secular people, center left people, but a lot also of center right, far right people that are not actually Christians. That's part of our mission field as well. So again, I, to me, the answer is not, mm-hmm. well, we need to, 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 to kind of not let evangelism drive the, you know, the, our posture here, because we're going to be embarrassed by, by evangelicals where that we think are putting obstacles in our way. 
No, to me, the answer is we need to think even more evangelistically because we need to widen the frame of who needs to be evangelized. And there are a lot of red voters, red state people that need yes. evangelism just as much as anyone else. So like, I, I guess I just, if I'm flipping the frame there, it's to say great commission and evangelism is not, is not the problematic posture. It's that some people only assume that the people that are going to need to be evangelized are those on the left. And to, I, to where I just want to widen that frame and say, no, 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 plenty of Republicans out there need Jesus, <laughs> just like plenty of Democrats do. So, so we've got to figure out what this looks like. And, and I, it grieves me that there's the, 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 you know, the, the whole big Eva versus elites versus what, I mean, I mean, that all of that's just dumb, you know, like, uh, I mean, look, you may have followed like all the debate, like the, the daily wire thing with, you know, the, the, the amount of money that's in the right wing media that's sort of taking it to, you know, to the establishment and whatnot. I mean, I think we've got to be like really clear that there's like multiple games being played politically. And as Christians, we just need to be very wise, very uh, uh, cautious, strategic in the partnerships that we're part of recognize because it's very easy. And this happens regularly for really good Bible believing faithful Christians to get played. And it happens on both the right and the left. And it, it's embarrassing when it happens on, on either side, in my opinion. So just, we've got to be really cautious. And, and when, and, you know, when sometimes when we become the, the, you know, we, we, we become pawns in someone else's master game, we've got to extricate ourselves from that. And remember, we've got a program, we've got a mission. Jesus is, is, has given us a task and we, we've got to just make, make sure we don't get you know, snookered because it's very easy to fall into traps. Yeah. Well, and that's where I'm really thankful for your book, which I think is a great call for the church to get back to what, what do we believe and to speak that with clarity, um, with an evangelistic heart, uh, to whatever context we find ourselves in. Um, I, before I let you go, I like to end the show with, um, there's so many black pills uh, in the world that we could be despairing over. What is giving you hope right now? You know, um, I, I, I'm always going back to, to, to local churches that I get to see doing amazing work, seeing people come to faith and, and serving their communities well. That there's just a lot of what we might describe plotting pastors and churches that are showing up day in and day out in, in their, and, and they're on, on, in, in, in small ways that don't make headlines are demonstrating Christian faithfulness all over the country and really around the world. And so, I mean, I just, whenever I think about, you know, there's a lot to be distressed about. I didn't, you know, that I just finished the season of a podcast. That's all about, reconstructing faith, you know, after the church has really had quite a bit of, you know, uh, credibility challenges based on all sorts of things from sex abuse, to, you know, all down to, um, uh, you know, abuse of authority, um, whether it's been race or whatever it's been. But the thing that gives me hope is that the, the church is still, even with all the problems, it's Jesus's bride and she's, she's lovely. And she, and, and in ways that people often overlook, she's doing beautiful things all, all, all around the country in the name of Jesus. And so when I think about what's giving me hope, I, I definitely don't look to social media. I definitely don't look to DC. I definitely don't look to Hollywood. Uh, I, I look to local churches that are day in and day out, keeping the main thing, the main thing and are, and are doing really good work and without a lot of plaudits and praise. I love it. Yep. Uh, same for me. Uh, that's, that's, uh, encouraging. Um, well, thank you so much, Trevin. This has been um, a blast talking to you and, uh, yep. Good to talk you, to you, Josh. Uh, thanks for having me. Have a great day. That's our show for today. Big thanks to Trevin Wax for joining me for this conversation. Uh, if you'd like to purchase his book, there are links in the show notes. Again, I found it really helpful. That's the thrill of orthodoxy. You can also follow Trevin over at Twitter at Trevin Wax. And uh, yeah, be sure to follow him. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, 
Um, it's definitely I want to start taking the show, um, broadening the guests a little bit um, and having a little bit um, of more difficult conversations. Um, I want to hear some different perspectives. I want to have the opportunity to uh, push back and have my own views um, sharpened a little bit. So um, if there's any guests that you think would be a, a great person to have on and talk to, uh, please send me recommendations. My DMs are open on Twitter if you want to um, send me a message there. Um, please share this uh, conversation with your friends. Um, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and um, leave a rating and review. That's really helpful. If you're listening or watching on YouTube, hit like and subscribe so you don't miss future content. Uh, if you are someone who listens to the podcast, I'm trying to grow the, the numbers over on YouTube. Um, so if you don't mind, if you think about it, head on over to YouTube, uh, search Josh Dawes and uh, hit subscribe to the channel there. Thank you so much. I uh, love making this show for you guys and uh, we'll see you soon.